All right, so tonight we are in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 again. We haven't really moved. We are about to move out of this so that we're actually going to cover more. But these elementary principles are very important to, I think, theology today. And, and it really kind of shapes how the church thinks. And as a result, I think it's worth time kind of looking at that. So um, let's pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we again are grateful for the opportunity to be free to stand here and sit here tonight to, to learn more of your word. And we just ask that you would continue to guide us in all truth, that we would be challenged by your word, that we would grow in our fellowship, not just with you, but with one another. And uh, as we look at some uh, what can be controversial topics in our society and the churches today, may you just uh, let the word speak clearly to us. In Yeshua's name, amen. amen. All right, so what we're going to do is uh, focus on first eternal judgment. We're also going to get to baptism here a little bit as well. But again, just reading our context of what we're talking about, Hebrews 6, 1 and 2 says, Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And so we've kind of dealt with most of them outside of baptism and eternal judgment here. And so I think both of these tonight are of, I mean, repentance, I think everybody kind of gets that. I think they for the most part, don't have any controversy with that. But when it comes to baptism, that can be a lot more controversial. And when it comes to eternal judgment, probably not so much controversy there, but we'll just kind of briefly go through that as well here. But think for a moment, what would the gospel look like without eternal judgment? This might sound maybe a little rude or crass, but it might look like what the churches look like today. You know, I mean, honestly, because we have given, we've taken grace and allowed that pendulum to swing so far the other direction that there is no fear of God, there's no fear of judgment in many churches today. If, if there's a hint or a scent of judgment that comes, they're gone. And so, I was visiting with a pastor here not long ago, and just talking about that, as far as a church, if a church wants to grow, we need to be preaching the word and the truth, because if we don't preach eternal judgment, what you are going to get is you're going to get people who will come to that church, who aren't grounded well they aren't going to be loyal you know followers it's going to be just lukewarm christianity and that's all you're ever going to get because if you start preaching judgment they're gone and if you don't preach judgment or you know get deeper into truth the deep christians the 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 ones who have um a foundation aren't going to come and that's kind of an important thing. So, with that said, let me just show you some of the church fathers. And 
while I think all of our church fathers, just like me myself, are not perfect. There's lots of different ideas and problems that we can talk about with that. Um, they did get some things right. And this is what uh, Irenaeus said here in his Against Heresies. He says, those persons prove themselves senseless who exaggerate the mercy of Christ but are silent as to the judgment. I think that's pretty profound. Um, I don't have it with me here tonight, but there's a clip on another presentation that I use of David Wilkerson. He was a guy that I just admired greatly. And David Wilkerson, back in the 70s, talked about how the church was going astray and how they had all of these um, surveys that they would take to actually find out what you wanted in the church. You know, things like that. And he talked about how this is up and coming. Well, we're, we're in it now. And I, I wish I had the clip because it's, I mean, the way he worded everything and how he went about it, it it's just powerful. And that's what we are. I think, I think it was Ravenhill, possibly, who talked about how if we didn't preach this kind of eternal judgment, those weren't his exact words, but then he said, we will have clowns leading the, or what was it, clowns leading goats in the church or something like that. The entertainment value, the things that we bring into the church to entertain people, to make them feel good, to make them um, have a nice warm fuzzy, versus challenging them to be convicted, to look deep within, to examine their lives. And this has become modern-day Christianity, exactly what Irenaeus uh, was warning us about. We can look here at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. He says, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. That's the goal of eternal judgment. Godly sorrow. It produces repentance. Repentance then leads to salvation. And that's not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So pain and conviction are a good thing because it does. It brings us to repentance, and repentance brings us to salvation through faith in the promises, faith in the deliverance that only Jesus, Yeshua, can give us. And if you go do a word study on the word fear, you'll be amazed at what a good thing that is. But yet we don't want fear today. We don't want conviction. We want everybody to feel comfortable, fearless. God is just our, our buddy, not a holy and righteous God that you know, we would tremble before. You look at Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, John and Revelation, anybody who are amazing believers, anytime they were in the presence of God, boom, flat on their face, prostrate before God. And so I think we're losing that. Proverbs 16, 6, and by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. If you even look at the Garden of Eden, what did Satan do to Eve? First thing he tries to do is remove the fear. 
you're not going to die. It's okay. Don't worry. You won't die if you disobey God. It's all right. It's a removal of the fear of God. That's where we are. There is no fear of God. Romans is quoting, I think it's Psalms, where he says there's no one good, no one righteous. There's no fear of God before their eyes. All have fallen away. Together they have become worthless. All because there's no fear of God before our eyes. I don't think people really truly understand the sovereignty, the holiness, the righteousness, the power of our God. We have just kind of made him our equal almost. And yeah, and that's just a scary thing. I mean, that really should scare us. And I think it's time that the churches do a, 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 a right turn, a U-turn, whatever it needs to be, but to get back on track to teaching the fear of God. Um, here's just some news headlines. This is from, uh, you know, back in 2018, the heartbeat law basically said that if the baby had a heartbeat, you could not kill it. Okay? Shouldn't abort a baby with a heartbeat. Well, I don't think you should abort a baby, period, but at least this is progress. Okay? But, look what this article here says. Shock. Dozens of Christians... Faith, faith leaders sign letters supporting the right to abortion. And it says the faith leaders said they are standing with every woman's right to be in control of their bodies. Just crazy. You see, a woman has a right to control their baby. So some, something was on, I don't know, Facebook. So my wife showed me something. It had to have been Facebook probably. But it was along those lines that if a woman is in control of her body, and we can kill a baby for that. How about with this COVID-19 stuff going on? It's my body. Don't I have a right to not wear a mask then? Right? Shouldn't we? Well, see, it's just illogical reasoning. If I wear a mask, it's not for me. It would be to protect others. I just don't think that we need to, to do that. But bottom line, it's just illogical reasoning. Anyway, here's in the Des Moines Register... Uh, it says, Des Moines, Iowa, March 20th, 2018. Or I guess it's LifeSite News. 68 faith leaders who say they are Christians signed a letter of protest against a proposal, Iowa law, that would protect preborn children from abortion once their heartbeat is detectable. It goes on, and are standing with every woman's right to be in control of their bodies. Mainline Protestant denominations led the letter in both numbers and prestige with a female United Methodist bishop a priestess from the Presbyterian Churches, USA, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, United Church of Christ, Disciple of Christ, American Baptist Churches, USA, Reformed Church in America, Unity Church, Episcopal Church, and United Methodist Church signing the document. The letter concludes another person's theological understanding of when life begins cannot trump the rights of women. Exactly, no matter what the Bible says. And this, this is the kind of thing, guys, that we have to take a stand. If we are silent on these kind of issues, this is just one of many that we can look at. If we are silent on this issue, 
God is not going to turn a blind eye to that. Now, don't get me wrong. We're believers. We're forgiven. You know, I'm not saying, okay, if you do this, you're going to hell if you don't stand up. But this isn't right, is it? Just because maybe somebody doesn't keep the Sabbath doesn't mean they're going to hell either, but we should keep the Sabbath because it's God's Word. Uh, a friend of mine, Gib Killian, he is up at Nebraska Christian. He traveled across the United States with Flip Benham. I don't know if any of you know Flip Benham or not, but um, oh, why can't I think of his ministry name? But anyway, pro-life ministry. They literally walked across the United States with donkeys and signs on their back, and Flip would preach in every town that they would go through. Took them, I don't know, a year and six months or something. I don't remember what it was. But, you know, most of the world would say that's crazy. But at the same time, I see that Ezekiel thing. We are to be a voice. We need to stand up. We need to be putting the fear of God back into people and let them know this is not going to go unpunished. As Ezekiel said, that we are to be a watchman on the wall, and if we're preaching repentance and they don't listen, then the blood is on their head. But if we are silent, blood be on our heads. And so we have a right and a responsibility to stand up against these kinds of things. Um, one of the things that Flip did that I thought was kind of poignant was when he would go to a town, he would always go to the church that was closest to the abortion center if they had one in there. And he would say, you know, in the Old Testament, if there was a death, somebody was found dead out in the field, they would see where it was closest to the town. And the closest town to that body was the one that was held responsible and had to deal with it. And as a result, he would go to that church that was closest and deal with it. But not many churches will, would accept him. You know, not many churches will support somebody who is standing so boldly because, well, it's offensive to some of our congregants. Honestly, I find the same thing with creation. It's offensive to some of our congregants to stand on a young earth creation like the Bible clearly says. Okay? And as a result, you know, they, they don't have young earth creationists come in and speak or whatever. Like I said, it, it is just pitiful. And newspapers are filled with stories of church com churches compromising, whether it be on abortion or homosexuality or a number of issues out there. 2 Timothy 4.3 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. We're there. You see, an itching ear doesn't want the fear of God. We want to tickle our ears. We want to feel good about ourselves. I had one lady actually tell me, you should come to our church. She's with, you know, our pastor is so good, blah, blah, blah. He says, he always tells us like how good we are. I, I, I hate going to those churches that they always tell you how bad you are. I want to hear how good we are. Well, good luck with that. Here's Leonard Ravenhill, another quote of him. He says, all you have to do is get in a closer walk with God and you'll find your enemies are in your own church. Anybody who's walking closely with the Lord definitely can see that. In the creation ministry, it is not the evolutionists that are my problem. It's my own 
brothers in Christ. Absolutely. Yeah. And that has always been, you know, ministry is one of the hardest things. I mean, you ask any pastor that. Ministry is one of the hardest things because we're always being attacked. You know, now some ministers probably need to be attacked. <laughs> but those that are standing firm on God's word today especially are being attacked. And they are the ones that are the minority that still small voice in the wilderness, it seems. Well, Acts 24, 24 says, And after some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, some background here. Paul has been arrested, and he is now going before Felix and Festus and, and giving an account of the gospel and why he's there. There was no good reason for him to be arrested. And uh, we've kind of looked at this when it talked about the resurrection, and he, he kind of pitted the Pharisees and the Sadducees against each other. But on another account here with Felix, it's interesting because it says that he came with his wife, Drusilla. Well, Drusilla is actually Felix's third wife, according to history. It tells us this quite clearly. She had abandoned her last husband to marry Felix. So basically, you know, like an affair. Well, she was a Jew, and Felix is a Gentile. So she has Jewish understanding. She has knowledge of Scripture. And because of that, Felix knows some as well. And Paul even brings that out. In verse 25, he says, Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I'll call, you for, I'll call for you. I love that. Let me ask you, if Felix came to your church today, whatever that church may be, do you think he'd ever get that kind of conviction to where he's, he would feel uncomfortable? I, I hope you could say yes. Okay? Because this is what Paul found important to be preaching one of the elementary truths that we seem to have let slide away. So, to me, this is a great biblical example of how eternal judgment, just like we saw before, what does it lead to? Salvation. It, it affects the gospel and how the gospel should be preached. But if all we're looking for in church is to have an emotional experience, to see some vision or a dream or some miracle sign or wonder, the devil has the easiest job in the world if that's your evidence of God and Christianity. You are so ripe for deception. Because if that's what you're looking for, something the flesh wants to see, he'll give it to you. Definitely. And what an easy job it is. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11 says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your conscience. Okay, again, we're in the New Testament here. I'm not, I'm not even, this isn't the Old Testament. We're in this grace-filled, gospel-filled New Testament. And he says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. But these just aren't verses we focus on today in Christianity. Colossians 1.28, Him we preach, warning 
every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. See, Paul understood you need to preach judgment because that is going to lead to salvation. Isaiah, in the Old Testament, chapter 13, verse 6, he says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt, and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They'll be amazed at one another. And check out this. If this doesn't strike fear in the heart, I don't know what will. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes. Cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate and he will destroy its sinners from it. Tell you what, if that doesn't want to make a guy stop looking at pornography or, you know, stop stealing or stop cussing and swearing and taking the, nor the name of the Lord in vain. I don't know what's going to. Because their faces are going to be like flames when the Lord comes and He brings His wrath on sinners. Okay, we need to repent and we should be examining yourself. As 2 Corinthians, I think it is, says, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Okay, I'm not trying to put you under the law and say, okay, well, you've got to be good enough if you're a Christian. But I'm saying this, if you are a Christian, you're going to be good enough. You, you'll have mistakes, you're going to have faults, no question. Okay, but you'll be repentant. That's the difference. Okay, I, a few weeks ago got all upset and had some creative words come flying out of my mouth. Didn't make me feel good. I felt terrible. Okay, but I'm not perfect. Now that doesn't make me question my salvation in one iota because I know my heart was broken because I did that. Okay, I took it to the Lord. I accept His forgiveness and I move on. So again, I'm not saying that we have to be perfect, but I'm saying that if we're living in willful sin and we're not being repentant and broken about it, something's wrong. Something is very wrong. But who talks like this anymore? We don't hear it from the pulpits. Very few anyway. So God says, vengeance is mine. Okay? Even in the New Testament, He... Romans, you know, he's quoting the old, of course, but Paul says, leave room for God's wrath. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Okay? But today we just hear about his love and acceptance. Psalm 711, God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. So, again, God is angry with the wicked every day. Revelation 19, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Today in our society, so few people want to consider God as a God of war. He's just this loving God. Matter of fact, you talk about God sending people to help. My God wouldn't do that. He's a loving God. 
Ray Comfort is so good about bringing that out and, and you know using that example of a loving judge who somebody just rapes your mother, your daughter, somebody close to you. You go to see this man get put in prison for the rest of his life, you're hoping, and the judge says, hey, I'm a loving judge and I'm a good guy, so because of that, you're free to go. He'd be the most unrighteous, unjust, terrible judge, and yet that's what we make God out to be when we say that he's not going to judge or send people to hell. Because he is righteous and because he is just, he has to punish sin or else he wouldn't be a just God. He goes on, his eyes were like a flame of fire. Again, very judgment-like. On his head were many crowns. He has the authority to do this judging. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, I used to always look at this and I thought, his robe is dipped in blood because, oh, Yeshua, Jesus, he died on the cross for our sins. That's the blood of Jesus. Uh-uh. No, this is his wrath. This is him trampling the ungodly in the winepress of his fury. It's in context to the ungodly. Okay. And, and the reason I say that is because in Revelation 19, what we're seeing is his eyes like you know flaming fire, He's making war. He's coming to judge. And what happens when he judges? He's got blood on his robe. Okay, well, let's look at a couple of verses here. He, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth, and he shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. So before I give you the Isaiah verse, how is he judging? With righteousness and truth. Well, what is righteousness and truth? In, in essence, yes. The law and the prophets, the word of God. The sword comes out of his mouth. We also see later, or somewhere around here too, there's a sword that comes out of his mouth. That is the word of God. And it's with that that he destroys these people. But then how is Rogo been blood? Well... Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. The scriptures say his commandments are, are righteous. His commandments are true. And so I think when he's coming, he's judging with the word. Isaiah 63, 2, look what it says here. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. So, taking what the context of Revelation 19 is, and looking at what says when he's coming to judge in Isaiah, again, this should instill fear in us. That if someone's not a believer, they should look at these verses. They should have a fear that causes them to get down on their knees and repent and tremble before God. Continuing in Revelation 19, Verse 15, also keeping in mind the context of what we just read there in Isaiah, talking about the winepress. 
it says, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, like I said, the, the word of God, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness, fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God. That sounds really, I think, exactly like what we just see here in Isaiah 63 trampling them in my fury. And yet that's the context here in Revelation 19. Same exact thing. Like I said, the title of my Revelation book is Revelation All of God's Word Revealed because Revelation, I grew up kind of feeling like, okay, well you can understand the Bible. Revelation, you really can't understand that book and it's just kind of so out there and nobody can really understand it. Well, if you can't understand it, how can you understand the, re the other 65 books of the Bible? Because 90% of what's in that book of Revelation has already been written somewhere else. And this is just one example of that. I mean, it, it's all there. I believe Matthew 24, you can see the six seal judgments right there. Okay, it, it, it's there. And that's why Scripture needs to interpret Scripture. That's uh, Isaiah 66, 16 says, For by fire and by his sword the Lord will judge all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Jeremiah 23, 29, Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Hosea 6, 5, Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth. Okay, all of these are the same context of what we just read there in Revelation 19, the sword that comes out of his mouth. For the day of vengeance is my heart, is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. <coughs> so uh, it is in Yeshua's heart to bring vengeance. Why? Well, for his redeemed. Like we talked about last week, those laying at the altar, how long, O Lord, until you come and avenge our blood? So yeah, we will be avenged. Like I said, Romans, leave room for God's wrath. Let him deal with it. Um, it'll be so much worse than anything you could ever do anyway. <laughs> um, like I said, it's not just a New Testament thing. It's all over in the Old as well. But First uh, Peter 3.20 here. We're going to kind of switch gears. And we are going to look at baptism. The, the second elementary truth or principle here tonight. Um, it says this, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an anti-type which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You might think this is a strange place to start out with baptism, but it's interesting to me that Corinthians, I think it's 1 Corinthians 10 possibly, talks about this, that the Israelites, when they went through the Exodus, they all went through the sea, they passed through the sea, and it makes a connection to that with baptism, that that was a type of baptism when Israel crossed the Red Sea. Here we see the flood is a type of baptism 
for the world, the earth. Why did it get baptized, you might say? Because of wickedness, right? Wickedness. And so it was a purification. It was a cleansing. The rabbis would teach that baptism goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden and associates it with repentance. Okay, uh, again, that's just what they say. But they, they basically explain that when Adam and Eve sinned, both of them went into the river to be baptized. Now, our scriptures don't tell us that, so you know, take it with a grain of salt, but this is what the rabbis teach. That because of sin, they needed to go be cleansed, washed, regenerated, you might say. Note as well here in Peter, it doesn't say that through water, eight souls were saved um, from water, which would kind of seem to reason, hey, they're in a boat, the water's not going to kill them, they're saved from water. But it says they're saved through water. It's kind of an interesting way to describe that, isn't it? The reason I'm bringing this up is because I think that baptism, just like eternal judgment, has been hugely underestimated and um, watered, down. watered down. Thank you. Yeah. Perfect. It has in, in the modern churches today. And I'm going to try and show you tonight that, first of all, the Bible does not say this. Early church history does not support this. It's only in our modern day have we seen baptism become something as little as an outward show that you're a believer. Some symbol to proclaim, hey, I'm a believer. And I think that if we don't have people asking to be baptized, we're not preaching it right. Now, that might like I said, be a little controversial for some of you, but I think that scripturally, we're going to be able to show you this, as well as through history and all of that. Exodus 19.10, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. When the Torah says washing here, it it's they're talking about baptism. This is just as plain to any Jew reading this as, as plain as the sun is in the day. Okay, Leviticus 11 and Numbers 19 as well are some examples. I could give you many, many. But uh, we see there that when you came in contact with a dead body and whatnot, you were to wash your clothes and you had to bathe because you were basically entering a covenant with God. Before the Ten Commandments were given, they were here supposed to go and consecrate themselves and wash. They were to prepare to enter into a covenant. That's what goes on all throughout the Old Testament when we see baptisms talked about. In Exodus 30, it says, You also shall make a laver of bronze, talking about the tabernacle here. 
with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. For Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water, just so that they can outwardly show that they are believers. No, it doesn't say that. Lest they die. Okay, now you can say, well, this is what this is complete different context. Well, we'll get there. But for now, I want you to see that this is a mikvah in Hebrew. Mikvah is the well, it, it comes from a root word that also means hope. Okay? Gives us hope. But it, it's also the word for baptism in the Hebrew. I think it's baptismo in, in Greek. But when God is giving the instructions here for the tabernacle, they're washing their hands and their feet. Now, I think, was it last week that we talked about it, or did I record something that, about Esau and Jacob and the hand and the feet and the beginning and the end? Okay, It's the beginning of a man and the end of a man kind of thing. And so the whole was to be washed, in essence, in a picture, is how the Jews see this. Okay? Now, notice the urgency that is here. If I would have been a priest ministering at the tabernacle, I don't think I would have forgotten to go to the mikvah first. Because there is an eternal judgment, a fear of God that's placed in here, lest you die. This wasn't a nonchalant, well, you know, yeah, oh yeah, oh shoot, I forgot to go wash. I better go do that. I think this was on the forefront of their mind. This is vital and I need to do it. It's very important. Today, when you go to Israel, I think as of 2011, there are over 850 mikvahs that have been found in Israel. Now, those of you who went to Israel, you saw these things. There are stairs that you go down into. It's not just this little pool that you just dip something into. You would, they, they would mikvah everything, pots, bowls, people. I mean, virtually everything had to be washed. It had to be purified. It was that important. This wasn't just a symbol. This was as deep as spiritual truth could come for them. They have even found them in archaeology along roads so that travelers and pilgrims coming to Jerusalem, had they become unclean or what, they could mikvah on the roads. I don't know how they probably had people that would bring water into it, or maybe natural drainages or cistern type things. I don't know, but it didn't matter your social class. This wasn't just for rich people either. Whether it was a the poorest of poor homes or the richest of rich. You have mikvahs everywhere in Israel. That tells me that they saw these baptisms as something more than just, you know, a, a nice thing for us to do if you desire. It's huge. So huge. Let me show you here. Um, this is what uh, the OU staff, I'm, I can't remember exactly where this is or what this is exactly here. Um, 
but it says this just to define what a mikvah is, okay, kind of a definition. It is used in connection with repentance to remove the impurity of sin. It is also used in connection with conversion because the convert has taken upon himself or herself to adopt the lifestyle of the Jew that is based on the recognition of God as king of the universe and an obligation to perform the commandments of the Torah. In other words, if you get mikvah, if you become baptized, you become a Jew, you are now obligated to keep the commandments. Now, this is, by the way, this is from a Jewish perspective. I don't remember what this is exactly, but it's a Jewish perspective of modern Jewish today. In the study that I've been going through on Galatians, one of the things that you will see if you, we ever get to that point or if you listen to it online or whatever, is the whole concept of Galatians, the whole concept is about circumcision. Acts and Galatians, Galatians is like really second Galatians. Acts should be first Galatians. They go like this. And I mean, they're, they're the same book. In Acts, the people that he's going to, he's already been to the Galatians at that point. And he's even mentioning, because Galatia isn't like a church of the town of Galatia. Galatia was an area, and you had all of these churches that are mentioned in Acts chapter 10 and 15, chapter 15 primarily, those are all churches of Galatia, like Antioch and so on. Okay? So he's already been there. The whole issue was this. In Acts chapter 10, we see that Cornelius is welcomed into God's kingdom. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. This is a huge deal because he's a Gentile and he's not been circumcised. How do I know? He's a God-fearer. There's two different types of people. There's God-fearers and proselytes. A God-fearer is like any Gentile but fears God, follows God. A proselyte was baptized and then once they were baptized, they had all the uh, family... My brain just went blank. Uh, benefits. Okay? They could go into the synagogue. They could celebrate the festivals. They could do all the things. But a God-fearer couldn't. Well, here's Cornelius, a God-fearer, uncircumcised, Gentile, and the Holy Spirit's come upon him. That's huge. So, Acts 15, they have a whole Jerusalem council to say, wow, what do we do about this? <coughs> and they decide, how, who are we to argue with God? And, as you're going to see then, the whole book of Galatians is going to show, really, in, from the Old Testament, God had predicted that this was going to be the case, that we are now circumcised in the heart, as Colossians 2 will talk about. So, after the Jerusalem Council makes this ruling, they send them out again, where? Right back to the churches of Galatia, which is why Galatians is really, should be second Galatians. Okay? Go ahead. You're not saved if you don't get baptized? They would say that. They now, being? The Jews, the orthodox, unbelieving Jews. But you say? I say, no, you do not have to be baptized to be saved. <laughs> Yeah, and we are gonna we're gonna get into that. However, with that said, I don't want to make it sound like it's not important, it's not important or 
vital for us to do. Okay? But to the Orthodox Jews, yes, you had to be. And that's why I say, if you were going to be a proselyte, you had to be baptized as well, as circumcised. So this is such a foundational issue for a Jew. As you can see, it was never symbolic. It, it had everything to do with life and death, holiness, righteousness, and, and spirituality, not just a ritual. Um, here it tells you it was for the repentance, to remove sin, and for conversion. So two very important things is we're going to transpose that idea to Christianity. Repentance and conversion. Okay, coming into the kingdom of God. Um, nowhere, nowhere in history do we find it ever being optional. Okay, that's pretty important too. Whether that be Jewish or Christian, early Christian church. Even the Talmud shows the importance of baptism. Um, basically saying you're never going to be a convert or one of us if you're not baptized. It says this, The sages, however, said whether he, the convert, had performed ritual ablution, which is baptism, but had not been circumcised, or whether he had been circumcised but had not performed the prescribed ritual ablution, he is not a proper proselyte. Unless he has been circumcised and has also performed the prescribed ritual ablution or baptism. So, circumcision and baptism were foundational for them to be considered a Jew, to be part of the family of God. Kind of repeating myself, but just showing various aspects of it from different areas. Here's modern day Jewish teaching. To receive the Spirit of God, which is very fascinating, isn't it? These are, would be orthodox modern Judaism today. Those who don't even believe in the Messiah. Well, Yeshua as the Messiah. To receive the Spirit of God or be, to pre, be permitted to stand in the presence of God, His Shekinah, His Shekinah, his Shekinah glory basically, um, man must undergo baptism. Wherefore, in the Messianic time, they believe when the Messiah does come, God will himself pour water of purification upon Israel in accordance with Ezekiel. 36. What I love about this is this is modern day Judaism telling you that when the Messiah comes, he's going to pour out water. He's going to baptize us. That's exactly what he did. John the Baptist said, you know, the one who comes after me will baptize with fire, with the Holy Spirit. Okay? What's their saying here? To receive the Spirit. Can you see? I mean, they are so close. I, I, I was going to say I want to pull my hair out, but apparently I already have. Okay? <laughs> but anyway, they see, though, to receive the Spirit of God, you need to be baptized. Without it, you're not going to have the Spirit of God. You guys have all heard probably of the red heifer and how that needs to be, you know, we, they have to have the red heifer to purify the priests in, in, in the temple to make this third temple. We're going to be talking about the third temple here before too long. and uh, I'm kind of excited to get to that because I think that's important too. But anyway, bottom line is it says that 
It was the water of purification. It is for purifying from sin. So again, just like we read in the New Testament, not the removal of dirt from the body. He's saying this isn't a physical washing just you know to get clean. There's something spiritual going on, and it is to cleanse us from sin. This has been recurring in these things that I'm showing you. It goes on. The clean person shall sprinkle the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day, and on the seventh day he shall purify himself, wash his clothes, bathe in water, and at evening he shall be clean. But the man who is unclean does not purify himself. That person shall be cut off from among the assembly. So serious was it that you were to be cut off. And he goes on, the water of purification has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. <clears throat> kind of like the priests. You don't wash, you die. Okay, going in the tabernacle. So once again, it's not presented as, as something optional. It's imperative. So let us get to the New Testament. Okay, let's get to the Scripture, not just what you know, the Jews say and why they say it. Matthew 3, 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, we're talking about John's baptism here, but notice that one of the things that they do is a confession of sins. <clears throat> now, as I was putting this together, one of the thoughts that I had is I've been to a few baptisms, and I don't really hear a confession of sins before baptism. Do you? I hear a testimony sometimes, but I rarely, if ever, that I'm aware of, hear a confession of sins. It just kind of stuck out to me as we're seeing this repetition in everywhere we go. So did he think he was making the Jew Jewish proselytes by his no. baptism? I mean, he, I yeah, definitely not. And one of the things you'll see here in Hebrews when it talks about these elementary truths, when it says baptism, it doesn't say baptism, it says baptisms, plural. And there is more than one. There's John's baptism and there's the baptism of the Spirit as well. Okay? But John was coming to prepare the way for the Lord. And it was confession of sins. Now, also important is when Yeshua is baptized by John, notice he does not confess his sins. There's no mention of that at all. He had none. So he, it says immediately he went up out of the water. There was no confession of sins done. Okay, And then he goes up into the wilderness. So... Verse 5 goes on. It says, Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and the region around the Jordan went out to him and baptized by him, confessing their sins. Verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so there is a separation here, but we see a baptism of repentance, confessing sins, and now we're also introduced here to the Holy Spirit, just like modern-day Judaism talks about, but with fire, not necessarily water. 
we see this happening in Acts chapter 2 with you know, the tongues of fire coming. And uh, if you've heard me talk, I don't know. I, I can't keep anything straight anymore. But bottom line, that's not a new concept. I know I preached on it at Lifehouse one time. But the tongues of fire was even at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20. You can go and listen on my YouTube or uh, podcast about tongues of fire and, and you'll, you'll see it there. Okay. But anyway, you can feel the weight of baptism here for now, what I want to address. Luke 7.29, when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves. Why? Not having been baptized by him. To me, that's a powerful statement right there, showing this is much more than a symbol. It says that the tax collectors justified God having been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers had rejected the will of God. Why? Because they had not been baptized. That's weightier than a symbol or an outward show. Okay. But when he started doing this, this was like a brand new thing then. No, not at all. No. Not, not at all. But I think the difference is he wasn't doing it in one of those ritual mikvahs, but even a lot of times it didn't have to be. They had what was uh, basically living water. They, they liked it to be flowing water. And uh, I think even maybe Ron had talked about that a little bit when we were in Israel. He was just doing what Jews do, but he was saying it's coming now. But he was preaching the kingdom of God is, is at hand, yep, and to prepare the way for God. So it was a baptism of repentance, not just a ceremonial thing like pots and pans, but normally when a body like to go purify from cleansiness, but I don't know if they would always confess their sins or not, but here with John, they were confessing their sins and repenting of their sins. So basically it was a preparing of the heart for the Lord to come. Acts 19.1, it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we've not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. What fascinates me about this is the expectation of being baptized was to have the Spirit of God. Wasn't it? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No. What? Well, what baptism were you baptized in then? You don't have the Spirit? What? How, how can that be? See, you know what I'm saying? The expectation is that for believers to be baptized and that the Spirit is given. Now, in the Assembly of God churches today, one of the proofs of being a child of God is to have that Spirit 
Well, uh, yes, if you're a child of God, you definitely have the Holy Spirit. However, they say, now not every assembly of God, but as a denomination, they teach that you must speak in tongues because that's proof that you have the Spirit and proof that you are saved. Okay? Now, I disagree with that. I do agree that you have to have the Spirit to be saved, but I disagree with the fact that the only way that you know that you have the Spirit is by the gift of tongues. Okay? 1 Corinthians 14 maybe talks about this. I don't, I don't know what chapter, but somewhere in there, 1 Corinthians is going to talk about that there is one Spirit, but you know maybe it, it might be prophesying, the teaching, it might be tongues, okay, healing. It says it's all from the same Spirit, but not all the, the same body has that same thing. Okay, we are many members, or one body with many members, I should say, and each member does not all have the same function. Uh, Romans talks about what is it? We wouldn't be a good body if we all were just tongues. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it would be. So, again, I'm not going to get into tongues and whatnot tonight, but I just want you to see that there's an expectation. What's that? Will we later, though? We, we might. Yeah. I don't know if in this Hebrew study. Can we go ahead and talk about it tonight? Yeah, I don't think we will in this Hebrew study, but we can definitely talk about it because it'll come up in other areas. So, um. But anyway, nonetheless, uh, we see a tying of baptism, the baptism of Christ, of Jesus, into the Holy Spirit here. Just like John said, one that comes after me is going to baptize with fire. And so there is, again, more than one type of baptism, and there's more than one gift, not just speaking in tongues. So when it says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He didn't say... Did you speak in tongues when you believe? He says, did you receive the Spirit? But today we often kind of have this idea, if you have the Spirit, it must be tongues. No. Could be teaching. Okay? Could be prophecy. It could be healing. It can be a lot of things. But you're going to know that you have a Holy Spirit. And uh, that's where truth is you know, an understanding of God's word, all of that too. So anyway, verse four, then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. Verse five, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Interesting thing. Remember the modern day Jewish understanding? The Jewish expectation is to receive the Spirit. You have to be baptized to receive the Spirit. That was kind of the expectation we see here as well. Ephesians 4.4 4. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Yet, if Hebrews says baptisms, we've talked about John's baptism and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
Well, I think the key here is what he's talking about. In other words, there's under the new covenant, there is one baptism. And really, they're both. Okay, there's a repentance, and there's also the Spirit, but there's one baptism in the sense of there is one name, in a sense. God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, if you want to call it the Trinity, but under one God, there's that baptism. Okay, under one faith, you might say, that we are baptized into the one name, the one faith, the one covenant. Okay, so when John the Baptist comes, he is preparing the way for the Lord, and there is repentance in that. What that does is that prepares us, just like at the Ten Commandments, they would, remember, they had to go wash first. Then God manifested himself so that we were baptized cleansed so that the spirit has a clean place to dwell. Yeah. Are there a few places where death is referred to as a type of baptism? Romans 6. I think we're going to get to that here. Yeah, actually, the next few slides. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, you're right. That's good. Those are great questions because if I wasn't going to bring it up, those are, I think, vital. Let's look at Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's one of those anchor statements. Prior to this in chapter 5, of course, you know, people will use these verses to say that, oh, we don't need to obey the law anymore. The law is bad. But to make sure that you don't go there, he's saying, well, what shall we say? You know, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? No! Don't go there. How shall we... We who died to sin live any longer in it. Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? So, what happens in baptism? Well, one of the things Romans is saying is you're dead, you die in baptism. Yeah, your old nature, that kind of thing is what I see it as. But it clearly is talking about a death. Okay, That's the whole symbolism that is there in baptism. When you are going under the water and you are immersed, it is a picture of death and burial as it continues. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. Okay? Now, if that's all we have, we're still dead. So, baptism by itself cannot save you. It can only kill you. But, when we have faith, it continues here. It says, Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised, came up, from the grave, came out of being buried. So we rise up out of that water, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So that when you're baptized, you stay under the water, you're dead, you come up out of the water, you now walk as a new creature, a new creation, a new, in the newness of life. Okay? 
again, it's, this sounds so much more than symbolism to me and outward show of, hey, I want to be a, you know, a believer. I want everybody to know it. There's more going on here. So we're going into the grave in baptism, but rising as we come out and we rise new. Um, there's something called the didache. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of it. I hadn't before this study myself, but it's an early first century document that's considered to be one of the most important documents to show us what the early Christians believed. Um, so it's really a powerful document uh, for early Christianity. And it shows here in 7 verse 4, it says, but before the baptism, let him who baptized and him who is baptized fast previously. And any others who may be able, and thou shalt command him who is baptized to fast one or two days before. In other words, they saw this as such a spiritual battle. They knew they were going to war. You know, even Jesus said when casting out demons, this kind, you know, this kind can only come out by fasting and prayer. That fasting is something that we do to humble ourselves, to prepare ourselves for battle spiritually. And the early Christian church says that before you do this, you should fast. Now again, I, there's nothing in Scripture that says we have to do that. Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch, he didn't have time to go and fast or anything like that. This is simply showing the mindset of the early Christian church. One of the things that Daniel Joseph talks about is he says that he's experienced a lot of interesting things in ministry. I think anybody who's in ministry has. But he says nothing has been more powerful than when he was baptized. And he says, I used to just kind of do this all the time, but he says, now I fast before I baptize people. He says, I, I fast because I know that this is a spiritual thing. He says, when people get baptized, Satan hates it. He hates it. And he wants to put a stop to it. He wants to lessen it. And I think that that's what he's done to some small extent in the churches by taking away the power of the baptism, the importance of baptism, and making it just this nice little symbol that we do. Okay? Yeah, if you want to, go ahead. Yeah, that'd be a nice thing to do. Rather than how the early church saw it, how the Jews see it, and how the Bible seems to be portraying it as very important. Matthew 28:18 says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you think of all the things that Yeshua could tell us in the Great Commission would be, you know what it would really be nice to, if maybe you would just have some outward symbol that people would know that you're a believer as well. Why don't you add that on to this tag? No. There's just no wiggle room for this being a suggestion at all. Like I said, uh, if, if people in our churches aren't asking to be baptized, we're not preaching it right. Because this is on the top of the list. And going back to the didache here, Oops, I went one too far here. It says, 
But concerning baptism, thus baptize ye, having first recited all these precepts, baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, in running water. But if thou hast not running water, baptize in some other water. If thou canst not baptize in cold, then in warm water. But if thou hast neither pour water three times on the head, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So running water, living water is preferred, is what they say. Okay. What's that? And cold water is second. I think I had that. Boy, when we were baptized in Israel, that was, what was it, 60 degrees outside or something maybe? I don't know. It was cold. Tertullian, another early church father, look what he says on baptism. Not that in the waters we obtain the Holy Spirit, but in the water under the witness of the angel we are cleansed and prepared for the Holy Spirit. In this case also a type has proceeded, for thus was John beforehand the Lord's forerunner, preparing his ways. Thus too does the angel, the witness of baptism, make the paths straight for the Holy Spirit who is about to come upon us by the washing away of sins, which faith sealed in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit obtains. So he also sees the Trinity being in there, just like we saw in the Didache, the Trinity was involved. <coughs> so, um, in Acts, verse 38 here of chapter 2 says, Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Notice there he doesn't say in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay? The reason I am bringing this out is I want you to understand, kind of in closing, that I think sometimes we can get caught up on, okay, we now know baptism is important, so now we have to make sure we do it properly. Okay, step one, step two, step three. All right, now I want running water. I want to be dunked. I don't want to be sprinkled. We have to make sure it's in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit because when they did it, I think they said in the name of Jesus, but I don't remember if they said in the name of the Father and the Son of the... You know what I'm saying? That we can get so caught up in, well, almost like being a Pharisee of baptism. I don't think that's the point. What I see Scripture saying is this is a matter of repentance... It's a matter of conversion, in a sense, that we are now new. We are made new. We are, when we come out, we are risen anew. And that this is something that God does, not something we do. We get baptized, but what happens in the baptism has nothing to do with us and what we do. It has everything to do with something God is doing. And I'm the first one to admit I don't understand all of what that is. But I know it's a command of God, not a suggestion. In John's baptism and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, to me, again, I don't know exactly what those people were feeling outside of We didn't even know there was a, a Holy Spirit. Okay, we know there's a Holy Spirit. We know that. It's part of the Trinity. We know... Also, you have to understand that until Jesus ascended, the Spirit, you know, how they couldn't know the Holy Spirit, it still confuses me. David talks about the Spirit of God. They had an understanding of that in the Old Testament. But it was different. It was like it came and went, I don't know. But now the Spirit dwells in us. 
I don't speak in tongues, but I know I have the Spirit of God. How do I know? I is your teacher? Well, I I just first of all I know because of my faith. You know, he is the counselor. He he. He's given me the assurance. He he gives me an understanding of of his word. He gives me love for his people. He gives me a love for his word. Um, you display the fruit. Yeah, there you go. There's fruit. And I don't think that without the Spirit, you're going to have the fruit. Because it is the Spirit that empowers us to have that fruit, to obey the commandments of God. But we could talk a long time, you know, what goes on and all of that in baptism. And, but like I said, I don't think that we, I can tell you outside of these foundational aspects to it that it's important and that I think that the believer's baptism is what is modeled in scripture that we believe in God therefore we confess our sins and we desire to be baptized to be obedient to the command and to allow the spirit to work and so somehow there is a connection to the Spirit in baptism. Maybe that's why God commands us to do it. Because once we are baptized, there's a cleansing, there's a purity that we see kind of from old to new that's supposed to take place. And as I said, it allows the temple to be purified. Because the Spirit can't live in the temple until it's purified. Yep, even if the water is dirty. And so we see that picture with the priest and the laver. You don't enter his presence unless you've been washed. Okay? His presence, the most holy place. Well, now we are the most holy place, the scriptures tell us. And so baptism, we confess our sins, and he purifies us. We, are, we die with him, we rise with him, and now we become new, a place that he is able to dwell and live and remain. And so there is definitely a connection, just like even modern day Judaism seems to recognize, as well as scripture pointed to, that the spirit comes at baptism because we are cleansed. So something is there. I can't give you all the details, but something's there. And it is important. And we should be telling, if somebody hasn't been baptized, we should be saying, you need to be baptized. Okay? But again, to me, I see the church is making it two things wrong. One, just an outward show. And two, that it's something we are doing. Mm -hmm. Yes? And it seems like every time, like, they believe and they're baptized. Like, it was like, as soon yep. as it was, like, as soon as they made... The confession of belief, or you know, they believe, and then they were baptized. It was like almost like a like an instant, and that like it seemed to me. And all of the times I've read it, and now it's like, wait, we want to ask you five million questions, and we want to ask to make sure that we deem you worthy of baptism anymore. Yeah. Rather than it being the spirit led by, you know, it's like pastor. Well, or even like, let me ask you this or whatever. You know, like I, I don't know, like 
even with kids or you know when they truly do understand it just doesn't seem like it's as instant as it should be from what scripture shows I agree yep I agree I think that it needs to be a very serious thing that people contemplate. Like I said, the early church, they fasted before we did it because they took it seriously. They wanted to prepare. This is what we saw at Mount Sinai. Three days before God came to them to give them the commandments. Which, by the way, remember Pentecost, when the Spirit is given, This all the commandments are given on Pentecost. So even that was going on at Pentecost when the Spirit is is pictured there and he's saying prepare fast get ready so yeah well now i want to be baptized again because now i feel like i didn't yeah i was like well maybe i didn't even say that right Being baptized again, I think it's okay. You know, um, I don't think it would be necessary, necessarily, because I don't think it's of us having a, a perfect understanding of theology and doctrine. Again, it's God's doing. And if we've been baptized, God is faithful in that. Um, so I would say you're, you're, you're fine, but I don't think there's anything wrong with the desire to be baptized. Really well, guys, we'll close in prayer. Um, and so, like I said, next week I'm going to be gone, so I'll just post it. But the week after that, we'll be on again. So.